0: That you want, you
1: should make me your girl. Hello, love. hello, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It's always nice to have you here today. Hope you're well. I'm really excited because today we are speaking with Dr. Jessica Hernandez. This week, her book, Fresh Banana Leaves: Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science, was released and has been so, so well and widely received. I've been looking forward to speaking with Jessica for quite some time, and I'm so excited to bring this conversation to y'all today because it is so powerful and I feel like we cross a lot of different topics. Let me give you a little bit of background. Dr. Jessica Hernandez is a transnational indigenous scholar, scientist, and community activist based in the Pacific Northwest. Her academic background is interdisciplinary, so she has studied marine sciences and forestry, but generally her work is grounded in her indigenous cultures and the ways of knowing through her community. She advocates for climate, energy, and environmental justice through her scientific work and her community work and strongly believes that indigenous sciences can heal our indigenous lands. We talked today about that concept of healing landscapes, and it was a conversation that I don't think I have engaged with in-depth with such an expert before, and one that really impacted me on an emotional level, just this concept of people connecting to the land more deeply. And what does it mean when we say healing landscapes? Jessica's current postdoc research is investigating the role energy plays in addressing climate change impacts through the lens of environmental physics. I first became familiar with Dr. Hernandez's work, Sometime last summer, I came across a tweet of hers that was somewhere on my timeline shared and I learned that a lot of my friends in this space have been fans of her research and advocacy for a while. So I did a deep dive and I've been actively consuming everything she puts out for the last almost year and I have to say how much I respect and appreciate her work online and her platform. In addition to teaching an introductory course to climate change at the University of Washington, Jessica also holds appointments at Sustainable Seattle. She's a board member of the City of Seattle's Urban Forestry Commission, and she serves as a climate justice policy strategist for the International Mayan League. She is so busy. She has her hand in so many things. And I feel like she does such a beautiful and eloquent job of explaining this really interesting space that she holds, being an advocate and so deeply involved in her Indigenous community, as well as taking that knowledge and that Indigenous science and making it a point to involve it in every academic and Western space that she can. Like I said, I was really, really looking forward to speaking with her. It's a conversation that has impacted me and just really feels like such a gem of a convo. I hope you guys are going to really enjoy it. We cover topics like what it means to truly heal landscapes. We discuss ecofeminism, which is a topic I get a lot of questions about, and I'm glad we could unpack it further. Ecofeminism is such a cool concept, and I'm glad we got to talk about it. And Jessica and I also talk about this concept of indigenous science not necessarily being Something we need to label as a specialty area or a specialty knowledge base. It should be something that's deeply integrated in all of the work that comes out of any sort of climate solution space. Again, this was a really beautiful holistic conversation that I think y'all will really benefit from. And I hope you deeply enjoy and you learn a little something. And you can now pick up Dr. Hernandez's book, Fresh Banana Leaves, wherever you get your books. If you do enjoy this episode, make sure you share it with a friend. Make sure you share it on your Instagram story and tag me at Eco Chic Podcast. And if you want to interact, all of my links are always in the show notes because I like to know what you think of the episodes. You can rate and review and subscribe and follow the show on Spotify and all of those great things because I love showing up for you every single week. I feel like I have so much to share with you guys. So much goodness is coming and I cannot wait. Let's get into it. Please enjoy today's conversation with Dr. Jessica Hernandez, all about healing landscapes and indigenous science. (laughs) Jessica, welcome to Eco Chic. I'm so happy to have you here today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Laura. And you know, it's a privilege and honor to be in your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I want to first start off by saying congratulations again on your release week. You've been so busy and the book seems to be so well-received already. Yeah, thank you for
0: that. I wasn't expecting it to be well received. And you know, it's a it's a privilege, right to be seeing how fruits of my work are actually being, you know, taken into account by many people, especially in the climate science field.
1: Yeah, well, congratulations. It is such a labor of love to write a book in the first place, I must imagine not that I've done it before. But I imagine that you have really poured yourself into it. And you can really see it in the book that it is such a blend of mixed experience. And thoughtful academia. And you just have such a way with words. So thanks for putting it out into the world.
0: Thank you. Because sometimes, you know, when you read some reviews, you're like, oh, maybe I need to improve my writing. (laughs) So that means a lot. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Absolutely. No,
1: you're a fabulous writer. And I really like your perspective. I was sharing this with you before we started recording that one of the first messages of your work that really resonated with me was this concept that you shared of indigenous knowledge not necessarily needing to be labeled a specialty. Could we unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah, so I think, you know, as someone who is also in the climate science discourse, you probably have heard of this, but oftentimes, you know, climate scientists... When you look at their research areas of expertise or the areas that they focus on, they oftentimes put indigenous science or indigenous knowledge, indigenous peoples. And I think that um, seeing that as an indigenous person and seeing how oftentimes our voices from indigenous peoples are not elevated within the climate science discourse. It kind of sounds like our cultures are being consumed, our knowledges are being consumed. But when it comes to inviting us to the table, where these solutions are, you know, taking place, where they're talking about policies, we're not invited to the table. So it's something that I wanted to call out, especially given that you know, we share our Indigenous science, our Indigenous knowledge, our experiences, as I have brought up in the book, it's often invalidated. But when it's somebody who has the credentials, and just because they research our communities and probably publish a peer review article, then it's validated. So I think that it's important to keep people accountable
1: and bring that to light as well. Yeah, thank you for that. I feel like also in this space of holding people accountable and saying that indigenous knowledge is not simply something to be consumed or kind of added as an aside to this more Western climate science space that we exist in, you must have experienced a lot of moments of self-advocacy of saying that, yes, this indigenous knowledge that I'm bringing to the table is valuable and important. And particularly, I, I imagine in the context of academia, because you do work in academia, I imagine that there's a lot of spaces where you have to almost justify these two separate quote-unquote spaces.
0: Yeah, and I think so, and I think that, you know, experiencing those situations where, you know, Indigenous knowledges was invalidated, my experiences were, you know, laughed at because they were not necessarily portraying peer review articles. It was kind of hard sometimes to push myself to continue, and especially in The Western academic setting, especially as you probably can recall in the Western sciences, right? And I think that being in community with my relatives, being in community with other Indigenous peoples, not necessarily within the academic spaces, kind of motivated me to use that privilege that we're granted in academia, right? Because not everybody in our community is granted the privilege to pursue higher academia to elevate those stories. And, you know, this work couldn't have been done just by myself. I have an entire community walking beside me doing the same work as well.
1: Absolutely. And I feel like something that I see that so clearly through is your advocacy of land conservation and supporting indigenous knowledge when we talk about land management and conservation and what does that look like? And I would love to talk to you a little bit about what you see as perhaps the wrongdoings, dare I say, of like how Western society thinks about land conservation, especially compared to what you advocate for from an indigenous perspective.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the layers that comes to mind, right, in terms of when we talk about colonization and settler colonialism and how it's manifested in land is patriarchy when we often refer to nature, you know, it's a, it embodies the feminine body. It's it's a she, right? That's what we call her, Mother Earth or Mother Nature. And I think that as a result of that patriarchy, it has taught us, especially in conservation, environmental sciences, or even in the entire discourse of our society, that we can own the land, right? And that also parallels the way that many women or two, non-binary folks, right? The LGBTQ. Q plus communities also treated where you know patriarchy teaches cisgender men that they they can own us they can own our narratives they can own our stories they can own our bodies right and it's kind of like parallel in terms of like how we view land as something that we can own as something that we can dictate what the land should be doing instead of like letting the land have its own voice and I think that one of the things that I see, especially portrayed in that, is like that patriarchy and that notion that the land can be owned and it can be tamed the same way that women can in this society.
1: Wow, I am so glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk to you today about ecofeminism. I feel like ecofeminism as a broad theme is not openly discussed too frequently. Uh, every once in a while, I will get questions about like, do you have an expert I can turn to to learn more about this? And it's really difficult to explain because sometimes ecofeminism is discussed as this kind of philosophical idea and as this theme that needs to be understood from a super high level of thought. But frankly, it's something that you see all the time when you are more deeply understanding land conservation, uh, even in the space of like, why do we have national parks? And why does colonialism justify public spaces being um, kind of honed in on when they are truly indigenous spaces. So I I would love to talk to you more about ecofeminism. I'm so glad you already brought it up because I've been dying to hear about it. At a very high level, how would you define ecofeminism? I guess for me,
0: the way that I define it is ecofeminism is just the ability to elevate indigenous and, you know, especially women voices and I think that we eco-feminism, we do not separate that nurture versus nature. Oftentimes, you know, we ecofeminism. I think that it also, it also includes men in the discourse. It, of course, includes our LGBT relatives, but oftentimes because it has that feminist word in it, right, we're kind of, um, like you were mentioning, we attach it to the philosophical way of that word, right, feminism, and I think that When we look at climate science, we can see how ecofeminism is not talked about, right? It's kind of hard to find women leaders or women experts in the climate science field when we see who are the people given a seat and highlighted in, you know, television broadcasts, news articles and everything. It tends to be like cisgender men. And I think that we ecofeminism, we can actually heal our landscapes and we can also you know, find climate solutions that will help us mitigate the impacts of climate change. But yet, like you were mentioning, it's kind of like, there is this gap between ecofeminism and the climate change discourse. And it's interesting
1: to note that out loud as well. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think something that you mentioned just now that has really struck a chord with me as well, is this concept of healing our landscapes. Because when we talk about that in a climate science perspective, it is very much like, how do we support carbon sequestration? But that's not really the root of the phrase healing our landscapes. It is much more about people and connection to the land and not to project onto you or how you feel about what it means to heal our Mm -hmm. landscapes. But there is a broader conversation a lot of the time that needs to be had between climate change and actual people and societies and these relationships that are intergenerational that that help you understand how you actually relate to where it is that you are. So could we talk a little bit about what it means to heal the land? Like, what do we need to heal from? Yeah, Thank you for bringing up that question
0: and for the points that you also made, because I think that oftentimes when, like you were mentioning, when we talk about climate change and solutions, we're kind of forgetting to grapple with that history behind colonization, right, with the history of the foundation of the Americas. And I think that in order for us to truly heal our landscapes, we also have to heal our people. And we have to start with Black and Indigenous peoples just because of the history behind the founding of the Americas, the slavery, the genocide that it's even, you know, happening today against Indigenous peoples globally globally. And oftentimes in the climate change discourse, we're kind of focusing on like the the low-hanging fruit, right? Like what can we do now? And obviously that's important, but in order for us to truly address climate change and into its entirety, We have to heal the roots, right? We have to get to the bottom of that tree that's causing the tree to die or to not survive those extreme weather changes. And I think that with climate change solutions and the discourse, it goes back to who's actually invited at the table and when they're invited, if they're actually being listened to, because oftentimes we just feel tokenized, right? And I say we, you know, all the marginalized voices, that have been left out of the climate change discourse, because, you know, we're invited to talks, we're invited to be, you know, have a seat at the table. But when it comes to actually listening to us, you know, people turn a blind eye to us, and they don't really necessarily listen to what we have to say.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's very powerful. And that's a really powerful metaphor of like, we don't just need to address this low hanging fruit, but also, what is it that is killing the tree at the root. And I also really like that you keep going back to this phrase of having a seat at the table, because there's also sometimes this otherness almost, like you were saying earlier about Indigenous knowledge being specialized knowledge, which it should be something that we're integrating into all of our work, Western or otherwise. But even saying having a seat at the table, there's sometimes this thought that Indigenous solutions or Indigenous goals for healing landscapes are not the same as those that are being discussed at this broader table of climate solutions, which also doesn't really make sense. Yeah, I think that it doesn't make sense because, you know, oftentimes we
0: try, and I think it goes back to what we um, prioritize in our society, right, which is capitalism, which is democracy, which is patriarchy. And I think that because a lot of indigenous values, and I can speak for my communities, do not necessarily align with those values that we have as a Western society or a lot of nations do, right, outside of the Western world as well. You know, they make it as other eyes, right? Like you were saying, they kind of make it other Um, something else, other. I don't know if that's making sense, but you know, it's not necessarily being integrated in mainstream environmentalism or in the climate change discourse. And I think that when we start seeing that we have to unpack those layers that are causing climate change to not necessarily find solutions, but you know, it's amplifying those impacts, then we can start to see how indigenous science, how indigenous knowledge systems can actually help us heal and find solutions that are not necessarily going to undo everything that climate change has done, because, you know, some impacts cannot be reversible, but adapt in a way that we can stop more climate change impacts from actually happening in the future as we continue to
1: live in this era. Quick break. I'd like to tell you a little more about one of our supporters, the Oregon State University eCampus. With sustainability at the heart of its mission, Oregon State strives to create healthier people and a healthier planet. Joshua Chan Burgos embodied that mission while earning his bachelor's degree in sustainability online with OSU eCampus. His life experiences have taken him from his native Puerto Rico to Asia to Ohio and to Florida. Studying online and traveling the world taught him practical ways to make an impact, like advanced technique in sustainable agriculture or How to Create an Ecological Restoration Plan. Like so many Oregon State graduates, Joshua now uses his skills gained online not only to impact his local community, but also in his career. You can follow in Joshua's footsteps by turning the study of plants, animals, or the environment into a rewarding new career. Oregon State delivers a variety of degree programs in conservation and natural sciences that offer the training you need to help protect our natural world. Learn more about how you can make your impact at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash ecochic. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash ecochic. It'll be in the show notes. Now back to the show. You have me thinking also about this really wonderful balance you seem to have between your own community and this more Western science space that you also fall into, I would love to hear a little bit about what it means to you and your community to think about climate change from a purely indigenous perspective when we talk about solutions. And I suppose by that, I mean, when we are discussing indigenous solutions and indigenous knowledge in the space of climate solutions, what kind of discourse is being had when you speak with your community about climate change?
0: Thank you for that question. And I think that one of the the main examples that I can think of on the top of my head is just like thinking about the notion of conservation, right? And I think that when I try to talk about conservation or try to understand how conservation is viewed from the indigenous lens, even in my native languages, there's no word that translates to conservation. Most of the words translate to healing or protecting. And I think that that kind of parallels you know the conversations that I do have with my communities or within my relatives where we're talking about healing where we're talking about protecting and I think that it's it goes back to the kinship that we as indigenous peoples have and one of the examples that I want to kind of emphasize is our creation stories right Um, every indigenous community has a different creation story but for my community it's known that um, the creator created us from our local environmental or natural resources that, you know, the creator had at that time. And as a result of that, this is why many of our native species, both plants, animals, and also non-living things like rocks are known to be our relatives. And I think that, you know, it's it's something different because we have that relationship with many animals and plants and non-living things. And in the Western roads, we have this different relationship, right? We have this consumerism relationship with everything that is not necessarily human. And for indigenous peoples, right, we don't think of just consumption. We also think of, you know, relationship building, protection.
1: Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to think about it. It also goes back to what you were saying earlier about healing the earth and healing our landscapes. It is so deeply tied to your relationships and how you view the land And I almost feel like also within the Western societies, when we talk about healing the land and indigenous landscapes, and even again, going back to that example I gave you of of public lands, quote unquote, and what does it mean to truly be like a public land? There's also this interesting dichotomy that when you have access to the outdoors, that is also a new level of understanding and appreciation you can have for climate solutions in general, and also just respect for the environment, And if you don't grow up with access to, maybe it's not necessarily like hiking and camping and all of these kind of shiny outdoor activities, but if you're not growing up with this understanding that you have an intimate relationship with the earth, there is very little incentive for you to care as an adult, as a grown-up, about climate change and climate solutions and the well-being of the earth beyond your consumeristic needs.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, that's a great example of how we can build relationships with nature, especially whether, you know, you don't necessarily have to grow up in an indigenous community or be, you know, in tune in, in terms of those relationships. So you can build those relationships. You can understand why it's important to heal and protect our environments. And I think that oftentimes, if you have a relationship with the outdoors, you can start seeing the climate change impacts, right? Like we can talk about urban parks. For instance, in Seattle, um, like I have witnessed that many plants are blossoming or blooming out of their season. And I think that that's, you know, an example of like climate change impacts and how it's actually impacting our local environments. But because most of us live in cities and most of the policies happening or taking place in cities, people feel that this connection with why they should care, why should they, you know, make better solutions to actually heal and protect our landscapes, especially in the climate change era.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. It gets me thinking a lot about representation and all of these great nonprofits that do advocacy work about getting marginalized communities into the outdoors more often than is historically normal, quote unquote, for them. I wanted to switch gears completely if that's okay with you but something you mentioned about again healing landscapes in this consumerist world and what it means to look at the land as something we can extract from and benefit from looking at the land as a resource i'd love to talk to you about this term eco wars that you use quite often or quite deeply in your book and it was a term that i had not heard before and the way that you explained it is just so beautiful so i'd love to unpack that concept with you just a little bit could you tell me what it means to engage in an eco war yeah and that's something that um
0: i think it parallels to my indigenous communities right and the impacts that we have had as a result of war and oftentimes in you know going back to my maya chordi communities we'd experienced the Central American Civil War, which has been coined as a genocide, actually, by the United Nations, because it targeted indigenous Maya people or other um, indigenous communities from Central America. And I think that as a result of that, we tend to coin that as a war, right? Eco Wars is just a continued genocide that's happening against our landscapes, against our animal relatives, our plant relatives. And I think that as a result of that, we see us being in war, right, especially when we're protecting and healing our environment. Even going back outside of the Central American, you know, contextualizing into the United States, we see how Indigenous communities are actually treated when they're leading res- peaceful resistance movements to protect their landscapes, to protect their environments. They're met with violence. They're met with these war tactics, right, that they're that you know this government actually uses that war, but then um, we don't necessarily call it what it is. And I think that calling it an eco war kinds of allows us to see the reality that you know it's not peaceful to protect or heal our environments. Right? We're actually going into battle. We're actually seeing many of our people be harmed because of these eco wars. And I think going t- to recent events, even the Ma- Maya Chi community of Guatemala was kind of experiencing the eco war where they were actually going in opposition of these mines that were basically destroying their lands. And as a result, the government met them with like violent resistance, right, with like war tactics. And I think for our indigenous Maya communities, especially from Guatemala, El Salvador, it kind of resurfaces that war that we're still trying to heal from that can be traced back to, in my case, my father's generation and to our grandparents' generations. I think that as a result of that, many of our communities, my communities, use the term "eco wars to kind of refer to that resistance to protect and heal our landscapes and environments.
1: That was so succinct and eloquent. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's this theme of generational trauma through the lens of environmentalism, which I think is really different about the way that you explain eco wars and then your long-term desire to heal landscapes and I'd love to hear a little bit about solutions you have for that like what does it mean to truly heal from this generational trauma of eco wars that's a huge question so I'm so sorry to (laughs) dump that on you so nonchalantly that's a major question yeah, um, but it's a, it's a powerful
0: question, right? Because I think that in order for us to heal from the intergenerational trauma, we have to address the layers that colonialism has embedded in our communities or in our societies, right? Because I think that oftentimes um, when you view yourself as a non-Indigenous person, you kind of wonder, why should I care about settler colonialism? like. But in reality, we should all care about settler colonialism because it's a It's basically why we have climate change impacts, why climate change is accelerating at a higher rate than we can actually curve. And I think that in order for us to heal from the intergenerational trauma, we have to heal our landscapes. And I think that um, oftentimes we forget that our environments also carry our trauma, but they also carry our healing. And I think that that's a result of, you know, our trees carry our memories. Our land, our soil carry the memories that we have lived through. And just viewing the experiences that my father has, especially when we return to his paternal, you know, to my paternal ancestral lands, the environments kind of manifest those violent memories that he had as a child soldier, right? Because he was only 11 when he was forced to fight in the in the resistance movement in the guerrilla. And I think that in order for us to heal from the intergenerational trauma, we have to reclaim in a way, our relationships with nature, with environments. Because I can say that, you know, my dad kind of fractured his relationship with the environment, especially in his lands, because he didn't want to, in a way, address those memories that, you know, his landscapes were bringing to him. And I think that as a result of that, he had to reclaim his relationship with the environments because he was trying to disconnect himself so that he kind of avoided having to do that, the healing, right? Because intergenerational trauma, as you mentioned It's something that it will take years and it's hard to heal from. And I think that it's an ongoing process for many of us, especially as we reclaim our relationships with nature. And I think as you were mentioning, even with hiking and, you know, having access to nature, it's something that some communities, because they have been displaced, have to reclaim that
1: relationship as well. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That was a really powerful response. And, I'm also just so enamored by this idea of normalizing these conversations that we're having because, again, just going back to what we talked about earlier, there is this sense of otherness almost when it comes to environmental conversations, indigenous knowledge, this sense that you need to be connected to the land. And that is not as shiny and sexy when it comes to climate solutions as something like carbon capture, you know, like, you know, they're on different levels. And it's not to say that one is worse than the other, but I'm going to tell you, I don't believe in carbon capture. So if we're going to talk about anything and it's about healing landscapes, we have to normalize these conversations. And there's almost a sense of validation that needs to come with it because I'm sure in a lot of circles, in a lot of marginalized communities and a lot of communities that perhaps they don't have this regular connection to the land, it almost sounds a little too daydreamy to believe that you could be so connected to the land. And it takes a lot of work and almost vulnerability on a really large community level to come to terms with this idea that like you have to get to know where you come from and you have to reckon with that in some way. There is always going to be healing to be had and there's always going to be this space for you to better yourself as a steward of the land.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you because I think that oftentimes, even when we look at restoration practices, right? And I think I kind of mentioned this in fresh banana leaves. When we look at invasive species, we're taught that we have to aggressively remove them to the point that, you know, they're weeds, they're devils, plants. Like I've heard all these negative adjectives be used against invasive species. But that's not to negate that they actually have a negative impact on our environments. But as you were saying, People haven't really reclaimed their relationship with nature because if they had or they do, they will understand that many of these invasive species are actually their relatives, right? Their plant relatives that were also in a way brought to the Americas through you know that colonization time period and as a result of that you know my elders have taught me that invasive species should be treated like displaced relatives because you know they might not necessarily be our relatives especially in our lands But they're someone's relatives. And I think that even pushing back the notion that people should reclaim their relationships with nature, should reclaim their histories, even though, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to reclaim your history because sometimes, you know, your ancestors didn't make the best decisions. They actually led the genocides or, you know, it's a dark history to come grapple, right, against, you know, grapple with and understand and embody We have to do that in order for us to understand how we can move forward. You know, unfortunately, in this country, right, the United States, we're seeing how there's this notion that, you know, histories that do not comfort whiteness or do not comfort, you know, white fragility are being pushed against, right? And that's the whole critical race theory debate that we're seeing, even though critical race theory is obviously not taught in in schools, right? But it's just that, That wanting to ignore that, you know, that dark history that many people embody and that's, you know, and if we do that, then it can help many people reclaim their relationships with nature and help us view our environment or even our invasive species differently as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you brought up this this, uh, debate around critical race theory in schools and the need for a lot of that intergenerational trauma to just be put on the table. And if we are continuing to not talk about these things, there is a shame associated with wanting to reclaim some of those narratives. Not that I'm speaking for everyone that has ever experienced generational trauma, but unless you're acknowledging something, you can't really deal with it long-term. And then on a high level, like we were saying earlier about having marginalized communities recognize and validate this need, there's also this sense of like, again normalizing these conversations there could definitely be this sense of of shame almost and you know my my parents and my grandparents never spent time outdoors and I feel bad that I'm doing this or I don't feel like I need to do this or whatever it may be and normalizing these conversations to say like if you feel a calling to do this if you feel a calling to like recognize this need to get outside and and experience the outdoors like you should do it
0: yeah definitely and I think that you know it's this that that shame right that oftentimes a Pushes us to not want to have those discussions, to not normalize those conversations, because you know shame is obviously something that we don't like or enjoy experiencing. But I think that you know there there has to be us coming to that you know connection between shame and and healing, right? Because obviously a lot of the intergenerational trauma, a lot of the things that we actually have to heal from, you know, there's a lot of emotions that are attached to that, and shame is one of them. So thank you for bringing that up, also.
1: Oh, thank you. I would love to close out asking you, I have two like thoughts in my head of things that I'm dying to talk to you about. First, I'd love to hear about the book. Why did you name your latest book, your new book, your first book, I believe, correct? Why did you name it Fresh Banana Leaves? So I named it
0: Fresh Banana Leaves. I think that, you know, the easiest response will be that, you know, it's Banana trees are actually displaced relatives, right? They're not necessarily native to Central America or to my maternal and paternal lands in Oaxaca, Mexico and El Salvador. But because um, we have built that relationship with banana trees, they have become our relatives, right? So we integrate them a lot in our traditional foods from our tamales to our teas, to everything that we cook with. And I think the main focus of, or the main reason why I named my book Fresh Banana Leaves was because of a story my dad always shared with me and i think that that story brings the teaching that nature protects us as long as we protect nature so during the central american civil war my father was 11 when he was forced to join the guerrilla and i say forced because um during the central american civil war in guatemala and El salvador i'm not really familiar with the honduras part of the history but in guatemala and El salvador the army was you know, the government was using violent tactics that they had learned from the United States military to kind of bring fear to indigenous communities in the lower class because they wanted to oppose the oppression that they were facing. A lot of the oppression manifested from the land theft that was um, then used through land grabs to sell to international agricultural corporations to introduce monocultural plantations, right? And one of those plantations happens to be, you know, the introduction of banana trees. So because of that oppression, indigenous communities kind of reveled against that, right? And obviously, even today, there's this fear, a notion of, like, we have to stop the spread of communism because, you know, it's like a goes against democracy. And I think that it wasn't necessarily labeled, you know, as, communism by indigenous communities it was just them resisting against that oppression but obviously the united um, states used it as you know label it communism so that it can you know um, bring the support from the united states and other um, countries that oppose communism so because of that my dad was forced to join the guerrilla which was opposing Um, side of the army just because you know if he didn't join the army he had to join the guerrilla in order to survive because you know at the age of 11 boys were recruited to fight because you know a lot of the men were dying in both sides so because of that my dad you know was receiving his training by the guerrilla and his encampment there was a banana tree and um, there were several banana trees for for some reason, my dad used this one banana tree to climb to get bananas for the rest of his, um, you know, his friends or his companions, which were all children. Um, and then in this banana tree, he kind of found it as his refuge. Right. So whenever he wanted to escape the reality that he was facing, he will climb the banana tree or he will lay under it and just, you know, kind of play with the banana tree. So at the age of 14, three years after he had joined, his encampment was bombarded and it was attacked by the army, right? Because they found the location. So my dad's first instinct was to go and run under the banana tree. And, you know, he saw a bomb falling on the banana tree, but instead of the bomb igniting, the banana leaves kind of wrapped it in a way that it prevented it from igniting, right? My father says that, he recalls, you know, being like, oh, this is it, you know, I'm going to die. This is my last day on earth. And, you know, because he was seeing the bomb just, you know, kind of destroy everything in passage that he was coming in contact with. So for some reason, this banana tree that he had built a relationship with kind of prevented the bomb from igniting. And I think that, you know, in the non-Indigenous worldview, that kind of seems like like mystical. It seems magical, right? Like a dream. Um, but for us, you know, what my father taught me was that, you know, it's because he built his relationship with nature. He protected this banana tree. He treated it like his friend. Cause you know, that was his, his friend that he would play with, um, when he wanted to escape the reality that he was facing, it kind of protected him. And it kind of embodies that fresh start that he was given the fresh start that our generations were given to survive. Right. And I think that, you know, it's, it's because, um, our animal and plant relatives are also protecting us. And I think that, you know, because of that banana tree, you know, I can stand here and have this podcast interview. And I think that as a result of, you know, that the main focus of the book and his story that, you know, it's, it sounds surreal, right? When you first hear it, but it's something that he really holds to his heart because he's like, oh, that banana tree actually saved my life. Cause otherwise, you know, I wouldn't have made it. And That's why I wanted to call it fresh banana leaves. Cause you know, it was the banana leaves that kind of, Gave us a fresh start and it gave us a fresh beginning and it was what saved our lives, right? And our in our future generations that are, you know, from our lineage. Oh my
1: goodness. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was an emotional journey for me as a listener. I am so thankful that you shared that. That's such a beautiful story. And it's so beautiful that your family has held on to this story so closely because I think it really speaks to how you view this opportunity to again even on a larger scale blend these two cultures in your work and in your advocacy and it is just so beautiful thank you so much for sharing that seriously I'm like I'm emotional
0: And thank you because I think that you know that's why this book kind of stays close to my heart because I think that one of the reasons why I wanted to write it was that I wanted to captivate my father's story because oftentimes when we look at the Central American Civil War and the history that's written it's kind of like um, watered down, right? Because it's not, it doesn't really show the nuances that we as indigenous peoples actually experience during that war, especially, you know, given that it's a war that it's a genocide according to the United Nations, even though there hasn't been any political action taken to ratify, you know, that genocide that we are still healing from. Like even going back to the mass graves, right, that have been found in Canada you know, there is a lot of graves that are being found in Central America of our children as well. So I think that, you know, the indigenous history, the parallels in the Americas is very similar even across borders. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I wanted to elevate my community story because, you know, we don't often hear about indigenous voices from Latin America, right? Because we, I mean, obviously we have to, you know, prioritize the indigenous voices in the United States, given that we're in, in, you know, in their country. But it's important to parallel Those similarities, right? That you know, go across settler borders as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I really like that perspective. The last thing I want to ask you, in the interest of time, I want to respect your time in this space. You have such a beautiful outlook on your story and your history, and such a thoughtful way of blending your cultures. And so, I'd love to just hear on a broader scale, like what gives you hope in climate change. Let's see, what gives me hope. I think it's like what gives me hope is like people like you, right
0: people in our generation who are going against that norm, right that's it, you know, that continues to exclude our voices. the younger generation that you know is coming full force to advocate for the protection of our mother earth. what gives me hope is seeing, how Indigenous science is being welcomed into many spaces, right? We have a lot of Indigenous scholars and Indigenous community members who we have to thank for that being, you know, a privilege and, and seeing that in fruition, especially in our generation. And I guess what gives me hope is, you know, something that it's it's our it's our identity that we are protecting, right, as Indigenous peoples, because we're not separate from nature. Um, our environments are our relatives right they hold our histories and I think you know seeing more indigenous representation in the environmental discourse seeing how you know even in the White House I know that it's a cellular government but we're seeing more representation of people of color and I think you know it's like people like you and everyone else who is trying to go against the status quo right because oftentimes when we do that um, we're labeled as, oh, they're just complaining or they're angry, but, you know, it's time for us to, but obviously that's that's the pushback we're going to receive, right? Because it's not the norm. And I think that seeing other people do this type of work kind of gives me hope because, you know, one person cannot save the world, but one person can plant seeds of changes. And I mean, a lot of people like you and other podcasts, you know, other environmental leaders are doing that. So I guess that's what gives me hope in, you know, in the two minute answer <laughs> I'm just
1: kidding. That's wonderful. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I think also this concept that it's not one person that's going to change the world, but a lot of us are planting the seeds. That is a really beautiful collective statement. And just that gives me a lot of hope too. I think, especially over time, as we've normalized a lot of these conversations and more people are coming out with louder voices, there is this sense that there's nothing wrong with challenging the status quo. I think that was also like a very shameful point for a long time in the climate movement. And now it's like, this is what we need to do. And clearly there are a lot of voices in the room advocating for what we've been pushing for. Yeah. And it's like the
0: shame, like you mentioned, also that fear, right? Because oftentimes when people try to push against the status quo, right, in the previous generations, they will lose their jobs, they will lose their livelihoods. But our generation is making it more accessible, as we were mentioning, right, the accessibility to be able to speak out loud, right, to speak against something. And obviously, you know, there's always going to be people who are going to negatively label you, but it's a little bit more accepted. And, you know, hopefully as we become elders, you know, we old ladies, uh, we can eventually see how the newer generation, right, the younger generation is actually made that the norm, right? Hopefully we get to see that and experience that in our lifetimes as well.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I feel like we will. I feel like we will. (laughs) Jessica, thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your thoughts and your perspectives. And I have just so deeply enjoyed this conversation with you.
0: Yeah, thank you for your thoughtful questions. I think that you know sometimes you can think um about them but not necessarily you know put them in words. So thank you for allowing me to reflect as well.
1: I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Jessica Hernandez. As I said at the top of the episode, this was a conversation I loved and I'm so glad that I was able to share it with y'all. I hope you really enjoyed it. I mean, that story of her father and the banana tree Literally stuck with me for weeks like I have been thinking about that nonstop every day it is so powerful and such a really interesting wonderful metaphor that her family uses to better understand their relationship with the environment. So I hope y'all really enjoyed this episode. If you did, like I said at the top of the show, if you've stuck around this long, you can rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You can share it with a friend, share it in the family group chat, share it on your Instagram story and tag me at Podcast. Let me know what you want to hear about next. I am always all ears to make this your very favorite podcast. I will talk to y'all next week, and I hope you have a really fabulous rest of your day. Thanks for hanging out with me. Talk to you soon.